1: This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. We're early in the year 2018, and joining us to discuss what is going to happen in the year 2018 are... David Sanger at a farm somewhere in Vermont, Corey Shockey at a palatial uh, apartment set up for her <laughs> in Buckingham Palace by the British government as they welcomed her to their country, um, and Rosa Brooks deep in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of Snark burning the furniture uh, and preparing for an even worse year than 2017. <laughs> um we're here to discuss what's likely to happen in the year ahead, and I'm going to do this lightning round style. I'm going to throw out a part of the world, uh, and, uh, and, and I'd like each of you to give me a minute or 90 seconds of what you think the big headlines will be looking at at the end of the year um, uh, with regard to that part of the world, what, what will have happened there. Okay, And I want to start with a country that's in the news really big right now, and that's Iran. Were there are demonstrations in the street? Nobody saw this coming. Uh, and the situation seems really uh, uneasy. Uh, what's the future uh, for Iran in 2018? What's the big story going to be about Iran in 2018? David Sanger.
2: Well, I think that these uh, protests are highly significant. None of us saw them coming, I certainly didn't see them coming. But I suspect the government will manage to go put them down the way they put down the uh, the um, protests in 2009. But who does this weaken? And I've got to think that the one it weakens, believe it or not, is uh, President Rouhani, the, the uh, reformer, you can call him that, who struck the nuclear deal with the United States and who then promised that the economic benefits would flow to the Iranian people, because this is largely a, a protest that started because people felt they weren't getting very many benefits and they were blaming their own government for it. And as it turns out, when you're supreme leader, you don't actually need to take the blame for anything. Or being supreme leader is never having to say you're sorry <laughs> to your populace, right? But if you're uh, President Rouhani, you probably do because he, the, the critique of the Iran deal. In Iran is the exact opposite of the one in the U.S. The critique in Iran is the Americans took us to the cleaners and we never got those great benefits from integrating with the Western economy that were promised. And my guess is Rouhani is going to end up taking the fall for that. Corey. Uh,
0: I differ from David on this one. I think that the big story in Iran is going, well, I agree with him. The regime will successfully squelch these um, these protests, and it will even further delegitimize not just Rouhani, but the entirety of the ruling class, and that the the day that Ayatollah Khomeini dies will be uh, when the regime loses control of the country. But I should point out, I'm not a Iran expert. i'm i I can't read their newspapers. Um, But the one thing I do know is that all of us should be rocked back on our heels in admiration of the courage of Iranians to protest against a government that arrested 10,000 people and tortured a bunch of them in prison after the 2009 protests. This is amazing what Iranians, the risks they are willing to run to change their government.
1: Rosa.
3: Yeah, I I am inclined to fall back uh, on the immortal words of Yogi Berra uh, to the effect that it's tough to make predictions, especially about the future. Um, I mean this reminds me a little bit about the questions that we had um, during the last big round of protests in Iran under Obama as well as the the atmosphere surrounding the, the surge of protests in what we once upon a time uh, – uh, naively referred to as the Arab Spring, um, some of which led to dramatic change, some of which fizzled into nothing, and and I think we are very we are we are collectively very very bad at telling the difference between uh, upheavals that indicate some sort of seismic change. Versus versus things that are going to be suppressed and will turn out to be blips. You know that that everything seems relatively stable until it's not anymore. Um, uh, in keeping with my previous comments in the last episode, um, so so I don't know. I mean, I mean, odds are um, that this will be suppressed. That it won't turn out to be terribly significant in the grand scheme of things within Iran. Uh, on the other hand, who knows?
1: Who knows? That's the kind of prediction that's putting this podcast on the map. All
3: right. Well, and, 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 and let me say in my defense that there is, a, there is a, a large and growing body of literature on the value of expert predictions, uh, which turn out to be basically worthless. Um, so, okay. that with the, the, the greater the, the uh, authority and certainty with, with, with which we advance our views, the less likely they are to come out, come out in the end.
1: Well, and get, having devoted a substantial portion of the past year to absolutely rock-solid predictions about Hillary Clinton's victory, I am evidence <laughs> of the conclusion. Well, um, like let's,
2: make, let's make a, a, a differentiation. Here. The experts in most places turn out worthless predictions. On Deep State Radio, we We're pride are always ourselves right. in <laughs> truly worthless predictions. Well, actually, on Deep State
3: Radio, because we often disagree about our prognosis, at least one of us will usually be right. Yeah, And that's
1: carefully calculated. But of course, sometimes when you have experts speculating on things, you might be able to pick up something from it, even if the prediction is incorrect. I'm going to go now to one more question about the Middle East before we move to a different part of the world. But one of the things that I'm noticing about the Middle East is it seems like there is Leadership tumult everywhere. It's not just Iran. In a very interesting story in the past week, you had the Jordanian king taking action against his brothers and a cousin for colluding or collaborating with the Saudis and the Emiratis. uh, Allegedly, Uh, there's distrust there. Obviously, there's distrust between the Lebanese and the Saudis. Um, There's you know tension within Saudi Arabia at just the moment where, for example, with Iran and a little turmoil, you might think that the Sunni states ought to be getting their act together. It seems like there is a potential for instability on that side of the equation uh, that that might color things in the Middle East. And just to throw one other thing as we're just taking a last quick look here at the Middle East for the year ahead, you've also got the Prosecutors in Israel looking like pretty hard, like they're going after Bibi Netanyahu.
3: Oh, that would on, be so uh, nice, wouldn't it?
1: Yeah, it, it really would be uh, on a on a on a on a bribery case. And so it, it, everywhere you look in the Middle East, whether it's the new crown prince and the regime that he wants to build in Saudi Arabia or in Iran, or uh, parent insecurity in Jordan, issues in Lebanon. Uh, Assad and the emergence of a rump state there, uh, Egypt and the problems there. Looks like there's a region wide leadership crisis that could emerge into a big story in the year ahead. David. <laughs> so As, I was
0: about to. I was David about to has
1: gone in. off to a meeting with a cow. David is.
0: I was about to leap in to nope. the void anyway, uh. <laughs> so I'm gonna I'm gonna take David's turn and he can have mine. Um, which is that I think you are dramatically understating the reach of this problem. Yes, you are exactly right, David, in your description of the leadership failures and the continued tumult in the Middle East because legitimate demands for governance um, by people in those countries are very poorly met by their governments. But you're dramatically underestimating the regional reach of that because I feel like everywhere we turn, what we are looking at is people um, being poorly served by, by leaders not stepping forward, by the failure of leadership in Western societies, as well as Middle Eastern societies and others. Okay, David, uh, d- I stopped. D- I filibuster you you, you
2: filibuster. You. I'm sorry. I stepped out to milk a cow so that at least there would be some product out of this conversation. <laughs> uh, so... Um, My view of this, David, is that the leadership vacuum left by the fact that the United States is not taking a significant role in many issues uh, in the region, other than to declare that Iran is the source of all problems, uh, is going to resonate for a long time. We are full of critiques about the Middle East, most of which are right, and We have no proactive policy that I can detect so far. Jared Kushner's effort to um, go uh, bring about peace between the Israelis and the Palestinians, well, who knew this could be so hard, right? (laughs) Um, uh, Our inability to actually make a difference uh, when we stepped in on both sides of the Saudi gutter conflict was pretty remarkable with the Secretary of State on one side and the President of the United States on another. Um, our support for Israel has been a bit reflexive, but hasn't actually taken us in any or the Israelis in any particularly constructive direction. And if Netanyahu is indeed coming to the end of his uh, of his time, which certainly seems increasingly likely, given both the investigations and just the the political gravity of the of the situation here, then you've got to think that Donald Trump isn't going to really know what his positions are going to be or who it is he's going to go off and talk to. So I think this is a a classic case of what happens when we leave the field, but no more importantly, don't have any ideas of what we want to go do there.
1: Rosa.
3: Well I'm going
1: to I noticed both of these very thoughtful observations thanks to your last comment
2: where Absent predictions But, but
3: go ahead <laughs> No, no, no I, I don't have a prediction I don't have a More prediction like either we Chinese
2: fortune cookies You know, which now have good sayings But don't actually predict
3: Right
1: <laughs> <them>. <laughs> yeah, the, um, the Chinese fortune cookies have failed Okay, well, they used to have fortunes. They used to say right. you're going to win a million dollars. Now they just dollars. have
3: proverbs.
1: Yeah, then yeah. Now they say things like, be nice to your mother. It's like, that's not a fortune. Well, apparently
3: there was an article about this a few years ago. They're all written by one guy in San Francisco, writes every fortune cookie slogan in the entire world. And he's obviously yeah, having a bad, bad decade.
1: These aren't fortune cookies. They're nagging cookies. Nobody needs a <laughs> nagging cookie. Nobody wants to open a cookie
3: right. and be nagging. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um. Best fortune cookie I ever got. Uh, you will live to be a salty old woman, the terror of all those. Ooh, that is awesome. I feel that's a prediction. That's a fortune.
1: That's a, fortune that's a good cookie. one. Did it yeah. use your name in it? It <laughs> I mean, said Corey Shockey. <laughs> you,
0: <laughs> no, but I am told it was planted by the friends I was there. with.
1: Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Very good. Well, a prediction about. The I'm not going to make a Rosa. prediction. Any it's predict- not a
3: prediction, but I am going to actually say something a little bit charitable and forgiving towards all the world um, in the spirit of the new year. Um, which is uh, we were talking in our last episode. Actually, David, you were running through a list of recent U.S. presidents who've all been crappy at foreign policy, uh, and just just now you were running through a list of Middle Eastern leaders who seem to be crappy at regional leadership. And and I was thinking, you know, I I'm sort of glad I'm not a U.S. president or a regional leader because it would be it's hard. You know, the, I think it's got it's hard and it's gotten harder. Uh, all the all the cliches that we use about the growing complexity of the global landscape and the warp speed at which events now unfold in the internet age and so yeah. on. You know, the, those are those are clichés because they're really true and I don't know what it would even mean. I'm I mean I'm not sure that I have any confidence that any of us know what it would mean to be good at foreign policy at this point or to be good at Middle Eastern policy given how how Tied up in knots, everything is. So, so this is this is uh, this is not a prediction. This is just a just a uh, boy. I feel I feel bad for them all because could we do it? Well, we could we could do it better than Donald Trump. Yes, okay, but but uh, uh, I don't, it's hard. I,
0: okay, I have predictions, so I, David.
1: Okay, very quickly.
0: Okay, uh, Jordan will be the beneficiary of. Uh, the Gulf states, the United States, and possibly even Europe rushing in to help strengthen and stabilize the Hashemite monarchy under its current king, because everybody's so fearful. Uh, They hadn't been paying attention to how much Jordan has been tottering uh, because of the Syrian civil war. Now people are going to pay attention. So maybe the Jordan king did this on his own. Uh, The alliance between the Iranian government, the Turkish government, the Russian government, and the Qatari government will tighten because of the reckless foreign policy behavior of the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia will, however, continue to make slow, important steps towards domestic reform and rejuvenation uh, that, that... maybe the foreign policy is distracting people from. Uh, What else from the region? Turkey and the United States are going to become overt adversaries.
1: Okay, so those are good. Those are meaty (laughs) predictions. And I'm going to throw in a couple other meaty predictions as we leave this region. And that is, I think this region has more of a likelihood of breaking out into some kind of armed conflict than uh, North uh Eastern Asia, which we will get to shortly. I think that the uh uh tensions within Iran are likely to exacerbate their tensions with Saudi. I think the Saudis are bent on a course of tweaking the Iranians for a number of reasons, not the least of which is it's going to take them a long time to produce major progress on the reforms at home. I think that the Merv, the Middle Euphrates River Valley Uh, is going to go from being a deconfliction point to a point of conflict between the U.S. and Russia as a rump state emerges Uh, that is sort of under the auspices of the U.S., even though the president of the United States doesn't really know that and doesn't really see this conflict with Russia coming, I think that things will get worse for the Palestinians as things get worse for Netanyahu, uh, which is going to make things even doubly worse for Netanyahu. And the final point is, and this is going to be my segue into the next thing, that one of the reasons that I think some kind of heightened tension or potential for conflict in the persian gulf area is because at the end of the day i think the calculus and whether or not there's a war typically and i know there can be acts but typically turns on the self-interest of the parties and for example i think when we look at north korea we'll say that it's not in the interest of the north koreans the south koreans the japanese the chinese or the russians uh, or thinking parts of the united states to actually get into a conflict uh, in the koreas but for example In the case of rising tensions in the Persian Gulf, uh, a a period of tension in the Persian Gulf, particularly if the world economy is slowing down, um, uh, might actually be to the benefit of all the parties because it might push up the price of oil, which would benefit the parties and the Russians. Uh, And I think we're heading there anyway, because I don't think any of the parties are um, uh, sufficiently in control of their impulses. But this does bring us to Northeast Asia, and David, this is your opportunity to wrestle away the heavy, thorny crown <laughs> of entropy. <laughs> Rosa,
3: um, as
1: I would like to begin with, asking you, what do you think the likelihood of 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 a war involving uh, North Korea and presumably
2: South Korea? Um, I think there is at least a 30 percent chance of a conflict. I'm not necessarily sure it would break out into all out war emerging this year between North Korea, the United States, and it would suck in the South Koreans and the Japanese. Now, would that go nuclear? Probably not. We've had lots of examples of um, conflicts between nuclear armed powers that didn't go nuclear armed. Think of all that's happened between Pakistan and India, uh, China and Russia, if you go back into previous times. But here we've got two unpredictable leaders, both of whom have got a lot of ego in this one. And I think that raises the risk level. Why do I say that there's a 30 percent chance of conflict? Because the conflict could come any of a number of ways. The first is that Donald Trump could simply decide he really isn't going to be like every other American president who said it's intolerable that the North Koreans can destroy an American city and may actually try uh, a way to preempt it, whether it's the punch-in-the-nose way of just trying to take out a few missiles or whether it's something uh, broader. The second possibility is that there could simply be an incident that, uh, The sinking of a North Korean ship during inspection, a North Korean attack on a South Korean ship, something at the Olympics, although I think that's less likely, um, that then triggers a response and you're off to the races. And the third possibility, the one that many people in Washington cheer for, is that you could actually see a collapse of the North Korean regime, something as unexpected coming up as we've seen happen in the protests uh, in, uh, uh, in Iran. But uh, I have my doubts uh, about whether that would happen this year. Um, But if it did, boy, there would be an all-out scramble for North Korea's nuclear weapons to secure them. There'd be a big scramble to go deal with um, who's got command of the territory. And you already saw Rex Tillerson in the most interesting Mm. gap of the end of 2017 talk (laughs) about how he's raised this issue with the Chinese, and uh, when I, I took this uh, part of his speech and ran it by other members of uh, President Trump's national security team, their answer was, he said, what? <laughs> Which is n- not always the thing that sort of is most reassuring about about uh, general communication within the
1: administration. Well, yeah, in keeping with the theme from the last show of Can't Anybody Here Play This Game. Corey, <laughs> North, North Korea... <laughs>
0: I do think the probability of war on the Korean Peninsula is three in 10. Uh, um, and that is. That differs double... from my 30%. <laughs>
3: <Is that laughs> actually... I'm going to agree with Corey on this <laughs> <I do>. one.
0: <laughs> and that's roughly double what I thought it was six months ago. Uh, and the reason is less North Korea's behavior than ours. I think this is a this is a complicated one for me because the president has unquestionably been dangerous and damaging and likely to to precipitate either a miscalculation or an accurate calculation of preventative war looming that the North Koreans act on. Uh, and I also think Uh, the national security advisor has been shockingly irresponsible in repeatedly insisting that the North Korean regime is undeterrable and making the case for preventative war. When the costs in South Korean, Japanese, Australian and American lives are monumental. Uh, The, State Department, the Secretary of State seems to me to have done, and also the National, uh, the UN Ambassador seemed to me to have done a pretty brilliant job in getting at least three rounds of unanimous UN Security Council resolutions against the North Koreans, getting countries to cut off diplomatic relations and refuse guest workers, which are a key source of funding for the administration. Uh, The Defense Department. Um, uh, has been cautious in its signaling that that uh, and trying to reinforce that American military force would be in retaliation for a North Korean attack but I would remind us all that there's only one person who got elected in this team and and the rest of the team in my judgment will carry out any orders the president issues that are not illegal,
1: Rosa. I, and you're going to differ from them by saying I don't agree with David or Corey. I think it's just slightly <laughs> under a third.
3: Let's <laughs> <laughs> say it's three point <laughs> one. No, I, I I think okay. I think both Corey and David are right. Um, I think it is it is still. Uh, less like—it is still more likely than not that there will be no conflict, I, I think—no I, I, open military conflict, um, but it is a lot more likely than makes me comfortable. Um, and, you know, I think a lot will end up depending on things that will mostly be invisible to all of us and that we'll find out about if ever, you know, 10 years or 20 or 30 years from now, which is to say— A lot of this may depend on the sort of behind-the-scenes conversations that Donald Trump is having with people like Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis and National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster um, and and how much Mattis in particular is able to continue to be a restraining force. Clearly, he's been something of a restraining force McMaster, it's a little hard to know what's going on in private and how much impact he has uh, on any of this. Um, but, you know, I think I think that when Corey says that at the end of the day, the Pentagon will obey any orders that are not illegal, that's clearly true. But at the same time, you know, it's, it's not – orders don't – well, in Donald Trump case, sometimes they seem to come out of nowhere. But I was going to say orders don't tend to come out of nowhere. Um, sometimes in Trump's case, they come in the form of tweets. But, but, but as we know that, that there's there's a lot of background conversation that goes into things, including conversations that, that relate to. I mean, legality is is not a you know it's not an on off switch most of the time. You know, as any lawyer will tell you. You know that that takes something like North Korea, um, a preemptive U.S. use of nuclear weapons. Under certain circumstances, most lawyers probably would say it would be illegal, you know, that, that, that the general requirements that the use of military force be – you know, discriminate between uh, civilians and combatants, uh, distinguish between civilians and combatants, not be disproportionate in terms of the suffering it will cause relative to the military advantage that can be gained and so forth. Um, lawyers take those things pretty seriously. And I could certainly, I mean, I could outline hypothetical situations in which I think most most legal advisors would say that particular preemptive use of force would be illegal, as well as circumstances in which pretty clearly it would be legal, as well as a lot of stuff that would be at the sort of messy in-between with a lot of argument. So so I think that even, even a question like that, you know, that there's going to be a ton, there already is, I'm sure, a ton of behind-the-scenes discussion. Uh, about, you know, would it be lawful to do this, let alone would that be effective? Would it make sense? What are the downside risks? And, you know, how it all turns out, I I agree with Corey. I don't think a war is likely to be started by the North Koreans, um, although it's always possible. We've talked in the past about the risk of sort of inadvertent escalation uh, on both sides. Um, It's more likely to be started by Donald Trump. but, But even there, I think that there's... It's still more likely than not that all of the various prudential concerns uh, as well as legal and ethical concerns um, that are being discussed behind the scenes will will have a restraining impact.
1: We've only got a few minutes left because David has informed us prior to this episode that he has a meeting with a cow um, at which, <laughs> you know, it happens in Vermont on a regular basis that or an opioid stealer. Uh, but. We, no. I didn't say was it was a dinner table oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. okay. that's not funny that's no it's not funny Um, but uh, when I think about the Middle East and I think about North Korea, I also then naturally start thinking about great power politics and the future of those. And in each of these cases, you can imagine the United States playing a blustering role, but not exactly leading. The Russians saying to the US that they're going to be helpful, but actually being unhelpful, whether it's selling oil to the North Koreans or you know, digging in with Syria uh, and the Iranians in the, in the Middle East. And the Chinese, uh, with a longer term view and a much more prudent view of the thing, playing the long game. And, you know, you saw in this past week, as all this was happening, the Chinese foreign minister meeting with the Afghans and the Pakistanis, you know, even as the U.S. uh, president is tweeting uh, nasty things at the Pakistanis. And that at the end of the day the North Korea thing is ultimately going to go the way that China wants it to go and that China will play a bigger role in the Middle East with each and every passing year. But in, you know, again, a minute or two, if you were going to write the headlines for 2018 with regard to the Russia relationship and the China relationship, keep in mind that we really only have five or six minutes, David, Where what would you think the headlines will be?
2: Well, I think the headline on China is going to be that they're going to continue to exploit our distraction. They had 15 years where they couldn't believe we were wrapped up in Iraq and Afghanistan and giving them, you know, free reign. Uh, Here, I think they are probably astounded that we're so wrapped up in the Russia investigation and so forth. The one thing that could get in the way of that, for all the reasons we just described, was North Korea. For Russia, it's more complicated. The president's hands are completely tied on Russia he's not going to be able to start any of the kind of initiatives that he had imagined, not only this year, but for the rest of his presidency. The Russia investigation has simply made that too radioactive for him. So I think the big question is, does Putin see this as his opportunity to build on Syria, build on his successes elsewhere, and begin to actually challenge NATO countries? You've already seen he spent a lot of time just putting military force up around Europe, just trying to show that he's back with the kind of powers and techniques that the old Soviet Union used in what he has described as their glory days. And my prediction is that um, he will overplay his hand the closer he gets to uh, his own uh, elections, that he will uh, continue to press uh, NATO, and that President Trump, having come to office saying, can't we all get along? is now going to have to make some big decisions about whether we challenge them, for example, on their violation of the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty and go off and build our own equivalent weapons. And I think the answer to that is going to be yes.
1: Um, okay. Uh, by the way, first comparison on the history of this show between President Trump and Rodney King. Uh, <laughs> Corey. Uh,
0: let's see. The China headline will be... Uh, riots break out in Sri Lanka after Chinese security forces open fire on crowd protesting Chinese control of port. Uh, and the wow. rest headline... That's yeah. it's an awful long headline. <laughs> our our, our a,
2: editors would make you cut that one down, Corey. Yeah, they're right. I, they would, I, they would, they would say Chinese
1: open fire, uh, Trump presidency strengthened. But go on. <laughs>
0: Right. Presidents unchallenged, false assertions follow. (laughs) Uh, The uh, Russia headline will be Putin's domestic weakness
3: exposed.
1: Wow. That's that's very personal. Rosa.
3: Yeah, I I think that the the China headline will will, as you predicted, David, be China continues to take advantage of U.S. absence to further its own economic and political interests. And I think the Russia headline I, I'm not sure I agree that uh, it's all too radioactive for Trump because I don't think I think Trump has already indicated that he doesn't really care. Um so I think we'll I think we'll just see more of the same though, which is to say that we will see what looks like two completely separate U.S. foreign policies—one emanating from the White House, the re- the other from the rest of the U.S. government—the White House foreign policy will be, "We love Putin." Uh, the rest of the government's policy will be, "Russia is an adversarial state," um, and I think that Putin will continue to opportunistically exploit the gap between those things wherever he can.
1: So we've got just a couple minutes left, and of course, there's one prediction everybody wants for 2018. They want to know what do you think is going to happen with the Trump investigation and what do you think is going to happen with the election? 60 seconds. David?
2: Well, I think the Trump, the Russia investigation is only going to get worse for uh, President Trump in uh, this year as you begin to discover more and more people around the campaign who were aware of what the Russians believed they had. Uh, from the hacking. I have my doubts about whether they'll tie that directly to the president himself, but they may well tie that directly to um, the president's efforts to try to suppress the investigation by uh, the firing of the FBI director, James Comey. So I think he's in for a really rough year on this one. And uh, my guess is that a year from now, we will still be discussing the Mueller investigation in the present tense. Corey?
0: Uh, I think Dems will retake, uh, both houses of Congress, but not by enough to, uh, impeach the president of the United States to, to have impeachment force the president's resignation, uh, or removal from office. Uh, I think, uh. People in the Trump family will be indicted as a result of the Mueller investigation, and the president will spend all of his time going wild on Twitter um, in ways that further diminish American domestic felicity and national security.
3: All right, Rosa. Sounds about right. Yeah, I th- I'm going to go with Democrats retake the Senate, but not the House. Uh, And I'm also going to go with Corey with members of the Trump family are indicted uh, and Donald Trump remains uh, an isolated, enraged, erratic figure in office uh, lashing out uh, as he is wont to do.
1: Well, I think I'm going to wrestle away the tiara of optimism from everybody (laughs) here uh, because I don't think Trump is going to make it through the year. I think he's going to resign under growing pressure uh, and the combination of the pressure from Mueller and the pressure from within his own family and his growing hatred for the job, that he will hate everyone around him. He will hate the job. He will not understand why he is doing it. Uh, And I don't think he's a terribly well man, uh, mentally or physically. And I just think uh, that if it's not this year, it'll certainly be early in the following. But my guess is that by the end of 2018, we will be talking about the successor uh, regime uh, to Trump, which will probably be Pence, that the Democrats will take the House, that they probably will not take the Senate because there's only a third of the Senate seats up Uh, and that we will end up in a period of constitutional crisis uh, and stasis. But strangely enough, even though I think Pence is an absolute menace in terms of domestic policy, he will probably defer to the system in terms of foreign policy, and you may see a slight normalization of U.S. foreign policy under Pence, except in areas like abortion rights and and uh, you know support for evangelical groups and so forth. Uh, so you know, I mean, if that's more optimistic, that's where I come out. I just don't think this. Hey, can David, go. if
2: it turns out that you're wrong and that and that Trump is still in a year from now, can all of your panelists get deep state radio mugs? I,
1: you know, David. <laughs> f- first of all, you don't know that all the panelists don't already have them. <laughs> 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 oh. <laughs> <laughs> secondly secondly you will have that so you will all have them shortly and following that will be t-shirts and then we have actual the, the next cool item coming along will be items with the actual ministry of snark crest on them uh and the ministry of snark crest is something everybody's going to wear on on sweatshirts uh undergarments um uh sp- sports gear uh and and uh uh, and we could have it shaved onto the side of your herd of cattle up there. <laughs> uh, but, so this, this year, you know, I don't know what's going to happen in the world, but I do know this. It's going to be a very, very good year in deep state radio swag. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, so I think we've prepared you for the year. We will have Corey reporting from London during the year. We will have these guys. We will have our regular guests on. We will hope that you come back and join us. Um, And before all of that, we're going to sign off by allowing David and then Corey and then Rosa to wish you successively Happy New Year. Go ahead,
2: David. Well, Happy New Year to all of our Deep State Radio listeners, all of our readers. And particularly all of our great panelists who are great fun to go – who are great fun to play with in 2017 and will be even more fun in
3: 2018.
1: Happy New Year, nerds! Happy New Year, nerds! Happy New Year,
3: glamorous listeners! Rosa Which is,
1: by I the way, the, the self-image of every nerd is, oh, no, I'm really a glamorous <laughs> But you're not. You're a nerd.
3: No, oh, they please. are wonderful, glamorous, intelligent, and attractive people.
1: <laughs> yes,
2: they are. Yes, you all are, Rosa. Anyway. Um, <laughs> and, and here's to our, our broadcast sometime when we all go visit Corey. And we're going to actually have one of those broadcasts from a British pub.
0: Fantastic! Where
2: you hear all the noise in the background of people, you know, sloshing around.
0: We will
1: do a broadcast from the pub where George Papadopoulos coffee...
0: (laughs) Great idea! I walked by there today!
1: Yes, what is it called? It's actually on the
0: same... It's actually, I think it's on the same square as the American Embassy is in London. What a coincidence.
1: (laughs) Um, D-movies, spy novels come to life. In any event... You've all that to look forward to, folks. Have a great 2018. Thank you for being with us here at Deep State Radio. Get your friends to join us this year. So long. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright.